0: We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23. That's page 976 if you're using one of the pew Bibles. And as Rick prayed, uh, I'm sure many of you, like like my family, is reeling from what happened in Uvalde this week. Uh, It's especially hard, I think, for those of us who have elementary-age children or grandchildren. You can hardly think for more than a few seconds what it would be like to be one of those families suffering this kind of loss. And this, of course, on the heels of what happened in Buffalo last weekend, where there was a race, racial-induced uh, similar act of violence. And the violence isn't just in these horrific killing sprees we see. There has been almost 200 homicides in the city of Philadelphia, right here, since the beginning of this year. That's more than one a day. So we're surrounded by violence. And there's another piece of this as well. There is incredible despair, I think, among many. Years ago, Princeton economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton. We're seeking to understand why life expectancy in our country was dropping. And they discovered that the fastest rising death rates were from drug overdoses, suicide, and liver disease related to alcoholism. They were the first ones to term this, as you've probably heard, deaths of despair. Where there is a, a fundamental lack of hope that we're seeing. So clearly, with all these things going on, they are are symptoms of a culture that is broken. We desperately need the, the truth of this passage because right now we're seeing a culture that is devoid of hope, that doesn't understand the wealth of relationships and is without power to change. Those are the very things that our passage is going to speak to this morning. If you're here with us in the sanctuary or you found our stream online, We're really glad that you've joined us, and and I want to ask, if you're investigating the Christian faith, where are you looking for hope? The Bible tells us that the only hope that is secure is a hope outside of us, outside of the temporal things of this world that is untouchable by the challenges and trials we face in this life. Please join me in reading Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be spending two weeks on this passage so today we're going to be looking at 15 through 19, and then next week we'll, we'll look um, at 19 through 23. But I wanted to read it all because it all hangs together. This is another one of, of Paul's really long run-on sentences, if you notice, from 15 down to all the way down to, to the end of 21. And this is also the first of his two prayers in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to consider three main points this morning. First, we're going to look at Paul's praise for the Ephesians' faith and love. Then, he points us to the most important knowledge, and finally, what we most need to know. So, Paul tells us that he is praying unceasingly for the saints because he's, fer- he's heard of their faith in Jesus and the love that they have for one another. Why is he giving thanks? Their faith is being expressed in concrete expressions of love to one another. And and this is a really significant theme. We'll see as we go through Ephesians, the importance of relationships in the church and the love that we show to to each other. Um, How I want you to think about it this morning is like this. There There are two axes. There is a vertical axis, your relationship with God. And there's a horizontal axis, your relationship with other people. And these two things need to cohere. They need to work together. So, for example, in 1 Peter 3, 7, he speaks to husbands saying, live in an understanding, or you could could translate that, considerate way with your wife. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers if you are insensitive, rough with your wife, Scripture is saying that's a problem. That's going to create a problem in your prayer life. You can't can't separate those two things out. So I want you to think about this a little bit. How does does your faith and your relationships hang together? What does this mean? You You can't worship God on a Sunday morning and then go to work on Monday and not be completely honest with your clients. That doesn't fit. You can't be in a community group on Tuesday night and then backstab one of your colleagues Wednesday. You can't come to a church work day on a Saturday morning and then go home and gossip with your neighbors about the guy up the street with the unkempt property. The way you, your faith is lived out horizontally really, really matters. He is looking at their faith and love and he's praising them that these are Unified. I want to press us a little more on this because you'll see in the passage, in verse 15, that it's your love toward all the saints. A really important theme in Ephesians is how God, we'll look at this in chapter 2, has divided, has, has torn down the dividing wall between humanity. Does the church look different than the world in how we do relationships? Or do our relationships fall into the same kind of worldly categories? Based on age, demographic, race, socioeconomics. What is defining our relationships? Are they crossing the lines that have been drawn by the principalities and powers of this world? Another significant theme through Ephesians, is, is power, and how Jesus came to undo the powers of this world that have brought those kinds of divisions among us. So I just want to ask you, what do your relationships say about your faith? Do these things hang together? One of my pastor friends put it this way, that the, the language of love is encouragement. How we speak to each other really matters. And this is important. Um, Put a target on my chest for a moment and and any other parents of young children in the room. It's really easy as parents for us to always see what our kids are doing wrong. Where they step out of line. And try to get them doing the things we want them to do. Instead of saying, what is going well that I can encourage? Where do I see signs of, of, of God at work? Uh, so I helped coach Ransom's Little League team this, this spring. Our season ended on Thursday, only one playoff game. We were, we were tied for last <laughs> in the league. But the two-seed team that beat us 0-8 to eight on Monday night was sweating on Thursday. It was like a miracle at the Nell Fields. It was unbelievable. <laughs> they beat us by one run in extra innings. It was incredible. Um, what did I learn coaching seven-year-olds? You need a lot of encouragement. Great swing, buddy. <laughs> As they keep striking out. But the swing, the swing. Hey, you were watching where the play was gonna happen. You know, it didn't happen, but you saw the ball. You know, you weren't playing in the sand. That was great. <laughs> we need to work hard to think about how do we encourage um, and bless the people in our lives. So he praises them for their faith and love. And then, then he pulls back the curtain for us. He's going to do this again in Ephesians 3 to show us what does it look like for an apostle to pray. There's a lot of important things that we can learn in this world. When I was an undergrad at Temple, one of my most significant experiences was spending a semester in Rome. And I got off the plane, and and my only Italian was ciao. So if you haven't taken the language, they make you, of course, take a course in Italian when you're there. And, And the course was very helpfully designed. Every week, it was the most important vocabulary for a specific situation. So the market, the bank, you learned all the words you needed to know, and then simple statements. And, you know, because we're creatures, the very first thing they taught us was dove il bagno? Where's the bathroom? <laughs> what is the most important thing for you that you think you need to know? It might be something related to your job. What do you need to stay current on? It might be your work. If you're a college student, it might be something in your major. Um, for some of you, it might be you know, the newest show on Netflix or, or the hip new band you are, you are following. What is the most important thing? According to Paul, he's praying for them to know the most important knowledge in the universe, and you see that it is focused on a person. That the most important thing he says to the Ephesians and to us that we need to know is God. We need help with this, and and we'll get there in a moment. But the most important thing is that all of us would grow in our knowledge of him. There is no higher knowledge than knowing God. Secular philosophy says to know, know thyself. But the creator of the universe is inviting us to know him, to be in relationship with him. And if you are, again, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, this is really important to know and to realize because... The Christianity is not ultimately about morality. I mean, God does care about our behavior, but it's not ultimately about morality. You know, eternity is not ultimately about avoiding hell. Although the Bible teaches that judgment is real, and we need to take that seriously. Um, instead, listen to how Jesus describes this in John 17. This is from what theologians refer to as his high priestly prayer. He says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not about a blissful existence in a new dimension. It is fundamentally about being united to God in a relationship with him, knowing him and being known by Him. Rick looked at the last couple weeks in Ephesians 1 where it talks about if you look at verse 10 if you have your Bible open there that the plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, that God's ultimate plan for the cosmos is that these two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm are going to be brought together, which is why Revelation ends with Humanity will dwell with God and live with him face to face. That's where all this is headed. Um, What's the beginning of that future? If you look at Revelation 19, it's a wedding feast. That means this life is your betrothal period with Jesus. This this is the time where you are building that excitement, anticipation, uh, love for one another for that day that is coming. So the Greek word that's used here for knowledge is epinosis. So the usual word for knowledge in Greek is gnosis. This is adding the prefix epi, which think of our word epic. Okay? It's it's deeper. It's bigger. He wants you to know a depth of knowledge of relationship with him. In fact, this is one commentator said, this is a spiritual parallel to the Hebrew word yada which is often used in the Old Testament to talk about the intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's the kind of intimacy God wants, the closest intimacy that we can think of in a human relationship. He wants to go that deep with us. Um, Saw a beautiful picture of that this week. Uh, We've been going through grief share at our church, and the video this past week was on eternity, And they have a bunch of different, you know, well-known Christians on there. And they had a clip with Johnny Erickson Tata. If if you've never heard of Johnny, she broke her neck. She's now 72 years old, but she broke her neck at 17 and has been a quadriplegic for 55 years. Um, She's done incredible things with her life, by the way. I I had this amazing experience when I, I was reading one of her books in seminary and I was riding, I was doing tree work at the time, and my boss had the radio on in the truck, and there was a, a news item about Dr. Kavorkian, and, and he, uh, you know, he was coming to trial. And, and my boss said to me, yeah, he put down one of my friends from high school. One of his friends from high school had broken his neck playing football at 17 years old, despairing of life, went with a physician-assisted suicide. And I had this wonderful opportunity to tell my boss, I'm actually reading a book by a woman who was in the exact same situation at the exact same age and has gone on to create an international ministry that is helping people around the world, has written dozens of books, does incredible artwork with her mouth. If you're not familiar, you've got to look this stuff up online. It's unbelievable what Johnny has done with her life. But anyway, fast forward. We're watching the video. Sorry, I got on a tangent. Um, she sat on the video. She's been in a wheelchair again 55 years. She said, I can't wait to get to heaven to see Jesus. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to be in his presence. And the thing that hit me was, I'd be saying, I can't wait to get out of this chair. But she has grown in her knowledge of him. So her love for him, her longing for him, I mean, of course she wants to get out of the chair but her longing for him surpasses what she anticipates physically. And so Paul is praying that we would have the same deep, intimate knowledge with God. Um, and you need to see this. God wants that with us. It's a mutual relationship. So he knows you, but he also wants you to know him. So it's very unlike um, experiences like going to the doctor. My doctor knows a whole lot about me. He's seen me naked. I don't really know anything about him. I don't know his wife's name. I don't know his children. I don't know anything about this guy. I spent a couple years, I was very blessed, after my, my first wife passed away, to spend a couple years uh, going to counseling with Diane Langberg. Diane knows a ton about me. The, what I know of her is really what I've gotten from her books. And I understand there's reasons in counseling why you have appropriate boundaries and stuff like that. but. But what I want you to think about is, in some of these professional contexts, the knowledge is kind of one way. With God, he wants it to be both ways. He knows you. He wants you to know him. Um, And I want you to think about this. Um, It's not complicated. Start talking to him. Start talking to him. And start reading his word. I think lots of us can be scared. If you know the Bible, uh, I've heard people say one of the scariest verses is Matthew 7, where Jesus says, you know, many people on that day are going to come to me saying, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. And I know lots of Christians who can get tangled up um, thinking about a verse like that. I want to put this verse in front of you, Psalm 86.5, for you know, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He's saying, just cry out to me. Talk to me. Treat me like I'm real. So, so are you talking to him? And the best way to listen is to read the word. Um, that is the primary way, I would say, he speaks to us. You know, the only real barrier in any of this is, is on our end, it's not on his end. And there's a huge difference between knowing a lot about God and knowing God, being in a personal relationship with him. We saw a number of months ago in James that even the demons know about God, and they shudder. Right? It's different to know about him and to know him and to be in relationship. But this is what I want you to see. He knows that we struggle with rival loves. He knows that our spiritual sensitivity is low. And he doesn't leave us alone in the pursuit. And so the knowledge of him requires his spirit, and that's what Paul is praying, that we would know, and that his spirit would be given that we would know. So he doesn't leave us alone in this. He knows our weakness and our frailty, um, It's only as the the spirit of wisdom and and of revelation enlightens the eyes of our hearts that we can see and we can get it. Um, And that's why we need to pray this for one another. And we need to pray this for the people in our lives that we're concerned about, maybe people who have walked away from him. God moves when we pray. We can't really understand this because he is sovereign over all things and yet he calls us to pray and somehow, you know, our creaturely minds can't figure this out because those two things hold together. We need to pray and, and yet he's sovereign over all things but he acts when we pray. I just want to make another plug for the prayer meeting tonight on Zoom from 7 to 8. Um, there, is, there is no more important thing we do as believers than to bring our hearts and all of our concerns to the one who cares and can actually do something about them. Um, So wisdom and knowledge um, that that, uh, he's telling us, wisdom and knowledge in this passage means that it's not just about facts, but it's also application to our lives. Um, He prays for wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. He's pointing to a flourishing human life. Um, and that true blessings are going to flow as faith is expressed in love. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But before we get there, we need eyes to see. We need a spirit, and we need eyes to see. And so it, it, may, it gives this phrase that, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. But what is he talking about? From a biblical standpoint your heart is not the organ that is pumping blood that's in your chest. The heart, from a biblical perspective, is the seat of the will. It, it's what you're making all your decisions out of. Uh, it's your volitional center, okay? And so he's saying there's, there's a problem with your heart. You need the eyes of your heart enlightened because they're darkened at the moment, um, And if we are honest with ourselves, our hearts are far from him. You know, we're not going through our days aware of his presence all the time, thanking him for the blessings that he's giving us, seeking him for all the different decisions and challenges that we're facing throughout our day. None of us are naturally living like that. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we would begin to see and to live the way he's calling us to live. the reality is there's a lot more going on than we can see, and that's why we need our eyes enlightened. Think about it this way. Human eyes are unable to see 99.997% of the electric, electromagnetic radiation that's going on around us. We see a tiny, tiny fraction that we call light and the colors of the spectrum that we can see. But there is so much more that is going on. Um, Bees and butterflies, for example, this is for you, Ed. Bees and butterflies can detect ultraviolet radiation. So here's a picture of how we would see a flower on your left and how a bee or a butterfly would see it. God has designed them so they can see ultraviolet radiation so that they they can hone right in on the flowers that have the most nectar. We can't see that, but it's there. It's happening around us. Similarly, snakes have something called pit organs. So this is the opposite side of the spectrum. On the other end of the, the colors of the rainbow, you've got ultraviolet and infrared. Snakes have these pit organs that enable them to sense infrared radiation. It's kind of like when we use a camera to, read, to see an infrared image. They can sense a warm-blooded prey that's, that's in front of them because they can pick up. It's almost like they can see in infrared. What I'm trying to say here is that there is a lot more going on in the physical world than we can see, naturally. This is even more true in the spiritual world. There is all kinds of things going around that that, that we can't perceive, and we need to ask for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened so that we would see what God is up to, and what he's doing. Um, So I want to ask you, are you praying this way for each other? Where do the eyes of your heart need to be enlightened? Are you continuing to, to foster a relationship vertically with him? Are you getting caught up in all the things that are going on around you in the world? So it's screening out things that... That, that are there that you can't see. Um, remember, this whole point in this passage is a prayer. As we get into the things that we, we most need, these are all things that have to be prayed for. Prayer is essential. It's, it's how God works. It's how God moves is in response to our prayers. So this, this important knowledge, the most important knowledge, is knowing him, and it reveals what we most need. As you see in this passage, Paul lists three things. He lists hope, and inheritance, and power. So first, hope. He writes that, that, that we would know the hope to which he's called us. All of us need hope. But the way we usually use hope is, is, is on, we place it on uncertain things, like, Man, I hope the Phillies can turn around the season. Uncertain things. Or how other people might, might respond in our lives or relationally. You need to see this. This is not the Bible's definition of hope. Hope in the Bible is a certain thing because it is rooted in who God is and what God has done for us. And so when Paul speaks of hope here, he's referring to everything that, that Rick preached on the last two weeks from, from verses thir- 3 to 14. Um, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. That we are holy and blameless in him. That in love we have been predestined for adoption. Adoption. That we have redemption by his blood, that his grace has been lavished on us. Paul is saying this is a solid hope. You have an eternity that is utterly secure because of what God has done. And, And you need to see this. Because any other hope is going to be contingent on something in this world or your own performances. What separates out Christianity from everything else, every other system of religion, is that it is rooted entirely in who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And that that is, that is our hope, not how we, um, how we are able to perform, how we can live up to our end of the deal. And so you are going to either hope in God's goodness and faithfulness or some other temporal thing that is going to fade or disappoint, that's not going to be able to satisfy you. And because of that, because it's rooted in God, who's eternal and, and uh, infinite and untouchable, the hope that you have is, is an unassailable hope. I, I like how it says in Psalm 27 that, that God will lift, David says, he says, God will lift me high upon a rock. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies. My enemies can't get to me up there. I've been taken completely out of their reach. Um, that's the kind of hope that, that God wants us to have. There's a great passage in, in Tolkien's uh, Return of the King where, if you know the story, the two little hobbits, Frodo and Sam, have to take the ring to Mordor to destroy it in Mount Doom. And they're, they're out of food and they're running out of water and, and they're in this horrible forsaken place and they're surrounded by enemies and it seems utterly hopeless and, and Frodo finally falls into this fitful sleep, and, and Sam gets up, and, and he, he goes out of their hiding place, and he looks up at the sky. And the whole time, this Mount Doom has been spewing smoke, so there's just, you know, everything is under this cloud of darkness. Um, but in this moment, there's a little break in the clouds. And Tolkien writes, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of that forsaken land and hope returned to him. Listen to this. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. That's the kind of hope that God wants to give us. That the hope is is unshakable it's untouchable and it's like a north star that is always going to guide you it's always true you can always follow it and guide you in the right direction hope that is rooted in Christ is one of those things that's going to help us to close the gap between our functional theology and our official theology that are often not meeting together second thing he promises us an inheritance He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see what God is saying here? What is God's inheritance? It's you and me. God is saying his inheritance is us. um, That we are his glorious possession. That you are valued by him. That you're chosen by him. Despite all your weakness and failures... He knows all the worst things about you. He knows all the ways you've failed in your relationships. But he loves you. And he's committed to you. He knows all the things that you are hiding right now that you are dreading people to know, either from your present or from your past. He delights in you And that's why Jesus came to earth, to deal with all these things. Think about this from Psalm 5710. It says, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. I dare say we are in a better place now, in the era of, you know, formerly the Hubble, now we've got the James Webb telescope, to be amazed by this verse that even David was when he penned it by the Holy Spirit, because now we have some sense of the vastness of the universe that David didn't have. And God is saying the vastness of the universe is so that you would have some understanding of how infinite my love is for you. My steadfast love is as great as the heavens. Um, You can't get to the end of it. You can't see all the way through it. It's bigger than you can imagine. So, humanity is not the center of the universe, okay? (laughs) We know that. Uh, God is, but he's given us the greatest commendation he possibly could that we are the riches of his glorious inheritance. He's going to be saying a whole lot more about the importance of the church and relationships when we get to to, uh, chapters 4 and 5 in particular. But I want to ask right now... um, how is your view of the value of the church? How do you value the church and the people in it? Do you see it of infinite value the way God does? He's saying, this, y'all are his glorious inheritance. What do you see as most valuable? What is your most treasured possession? If you're not sure... Consider how you prioritize your time and your energy and your resources. Where does church and relationship with other believers fit into that? And I wanna point back to what I said earlier, are the relationships with other believers breaking the typical boundaries drawn by the powers and principalities? Race, socioeconomics, demographics, things like that. are you seeing the people of God as infinitely valuable? We desperately need the eyes of our hearts enlightened, I would say, to see this. Um, what would change in your life if you began to see and value relationships the way God does? How would that change your marriage? How would that change your parenting How would that change how you engage with your extended family or in your work relationships? I wanna just give one small challenge here. How do you think the onslaught of the smartphone and social media have impacted your relationships in the real world? I suspect in the decades to come sociologists are gonna be pointing back to this season where we were first getting our sea legs with this new technology and seeing how incredibly destructive it was to to relationships. Um, Finally, power. I'm gonna say a lot more about this next week, uh, but I I just wanna tee it up here a little bit because we're living between the call of God and the future inheritance that's gonna come to fruition but what Paul is saying is what you have right now is power. What you have right now in your life is power. And specifically, what Paul is saying is that the power of Easter is available in your everyday life. So part of what Paul is going to be challenging is the imperial might of Rome in this letter. And the you know, the, the magic arts of paganism that were practiced in Ephesus. If you read the, account in, uh, the accounts of Ephesus in Acts, um, they destroyed 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magical books, the saints, when they came to faith. So, so magic was a big thing. Obviously, it was an imperial city, so the might of Rome was a big thing. Um, Paul is saying you have a greater power. Those are nothing compared to power that raises the dead. So I mentioned a moment ago that God loves all of us despite our faults. But he loves all of us too much to let us stay the way we are at the same time. He really wants us to grow more and more like Jesus. But notice what happened here. Paul went from what he was praying for them, to now saying us, the power for us who believe. Um, Paul has an awareness that he himself is someone who needs this power in his life. Um, So what does this power mean? It means, because the gospel is true, resurrection power is offered to you. You really can conquer that sin that's been dogging you for years. And not only overcome it, but overcome it with humility so that you don't just become arrogant because now you're better than that guy who's still doing it. He enables us to overcome sin without becoming proud, to have humility. He wants us to become people, empowers us to become people who serve others with joy and realize that that is the blessing of life, not living self-referential and for my own pleasure all the time, which when we're honest with ourselves is so enslaving and unsatisfying. He wants to give us power for a life that is characterized by the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now those things might not sound like much but if you are honest with yourself, there is no way you muster those things up on your own, at least not over the long haul. Like, you might do it in little spurts, but not consistently. That is incredible power, and that's what's being offered to you. And if we're honest with ourselves, those things are actually what a flourishing life looks like. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that are going to make for a good life, a life of flourishing. Uh, Let me just end quickly with this. If you are not wowed by these promises, it shows you how much you need this prayer. Um, Again, prayer is essential. Join us for the prayer meeting tonight. We need to pray for one another along these lines. Um, God loves you. He wants to be known by you. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He promises to help us because he knows our weakness. And as you grow in that relationship with him, he wants to strengthen your hope in the midst of so much despair that's going on culturally. Um, He wants a love that is overflowing as you understand the incredible riches of the people that are sitting around you right now how your life will be enriched by the people sitting next to you. He wants you to know true wealth. And he wants to bring resurrection power to all those weak, dying places in your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. Thank you that all your promises to us are yes and amen in Christ, and that you are faithful, and you will surely do the works that you have promised in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.